something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, the show's currently on break until the new year, but we've got plenty of classic episodes to tide you over. Enjoy this trip through the show's own history, and I'll see you back here on January 2nd with a batch of brand new episodes. See you then. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello, I'm Holly Fry. Welcome to the podcast. I am sitting in for Tracy V. Wilson this week. It is December 25th, so if you celebrate Christmas, I hope you're having a Merry Christmas. But on this day in 1758, a very important thing happened. Halley's Comet returned. That was important because it had been predicted, and it confirmed the work that Edmund Halley had been doing. Edmund Halley, you will also sometimes hear it pronounced Holly, sometimes Haley, but Haley is generally considered wrong, and whether Halley or Holly is correct is a matter of some debate. I'm going with Halley. And Edmund Halley first spotted the comet that would later be named for him in 1682. To be clear, this was not the first time this comet had been spotted. It was just the first time that Edmund Halley saw it. Comets prior to Halley's work in astronomy were often associated with an assortment of misconceptions historically. They had been thought to be omens sent by deities, harbingers of some sort, or sometimes just unpredictable and unexplained anomalies of the sky. In 1684, Halley paid a visit to Isaac Newton to discuss issues of celestial motion. And this meeting has become, in and of itself, something of a famed moment in astronomy history, a pivotal discussion that resulted in an expansion of human knowledge regarding how the universe works. Newton, working on some of the ideas that he and Halley had discussed and sort of putting together some of the things that he had already been working on, eventually published his work, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. That's also known commonly as Principia, which is an abbreviation of its original Latin title. And Halley actually edited Principia, and he paid for its printing. He believed in it so much. So he became intimately acquainted with its contents, including Newton's calculations on elliptical orbits. 
Edmund Halley began meticulously analyzing the orbits of 24 comet sightings that were on record. It was using those calculations that Halley noticed that the orbits of the comets that had been seen and reported in 1531 and 1607 appeared to be the same one that he had seen in 1682. With additional examination of the data he had available, Edmund Halley determined that the comet was on an orbit that took about 76 years to circle the sun, with variables such as planetary gravity shifting the time to be slightly longer or shorter. And using that information, he then predicted that the comet would once again fly by the Earth in late 1758 or early 1759. When Halley initially made this prediction, he seemed pretty confident about it, writing, quote, I can undertake confidently to predict the return of the comet in 1758. Though over the years, his language in discussing this whole matter became less assertive. He started saying things like, I may venture to foretell in a preface to discussing his prediction. But throughout, he was constantly refining his astronomical tables, and eventually he felt fairly certain once again of the time frame that he had set for the comet's predicted return. And there were other astronomers working on this idea as well. Alexis-Claude Clairaut, for example, came to the conclusion that the comet would return in 1759, in the spring, not 1758. Edmund Halley died in 1742, so he did not live long enough to see if his prediction was accurate. And he knew that would be the case. And he famously wrote, quote, If it should return, according to our predictions, impartial posterity will not refuse to acknowledge that this was first discovered by an Englishman. And just as Edmund Halley had predicted, on Christmas 1758, the comet was seen in the night sky. And this was lauded as a massive validation for the work of both Isaac Newton and Edmund Halley. Shortly after the comet's Christmas Day reappearance, French astronomer Nicolas-Louis de Lacaille, who also worked on calculating comet orbits, gave the comet Halley's name. Its official designation is actually 1P slash Halley. Since the 18th century, numerous sightings of astronomical events have been determined to have been sightings of Halley's comet. The oldest documented sighting that is believed to have possibly been Halley's Comet happened in 466 BCE and was visible from ancient Greece. The next time the comet is expected to pass by Earth is the summer of 2061. I want to thank Eves Jeffcoat for her work on the research for this episode and Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their always incredible and professional audio work. If you would like to subscribe to the podcast, you can do so. Uh, you can find This Day in History on Apple Podcasts, on the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stick around tomorrow because we're going to talk a little bit about a fairly new holiday tradition. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts 
that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History class a show where we peel back a new layer of history every day. The day was December 25th, 1831. The Baptist War, also known as the Christmas Rebellion, began in the British colony of Jamaica. Gathering the support of up to 60,000 enslaved people, it was one of the largest slave uprising in the British West Indies and contributed to Britain's abolition of slavery two years later. At the time of the uprising, Jamaica was home to more enslaved people than free people. Enslaved people were forced to labor on sugar plantations, and harsh punishments were common. Throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, enslaved people led many resistance efforts. Buying and selling enslaved people was banned in the British Empire in 1807, but people could continue to own them. But by 1831, the abolition movement was well underway in the United Kingdom, and anti-slavery resistance was taking place across the British Empire. Jamaican planters voiced their opposition to emancipation as the issue of slavery was being debated in British Parliament, and many Black people in Jamaica were taught reading, writing, and religion by missionaries. That meant that they, too, were keeping up with the slavery debate across the British Empire. Enslaved Baptist preacher Samuel Sharp led many people to believe that emancipation was coming soon or that Britain had granted their freedom and the masters were withholding it. 
and an economic downturn that affected impoverished white people made some of them allies with enslaved people who called for emancipation. Preachers also used Christian theology to argue that they should have only one master, and that was Jesus. On top of that, many enslaved people believed that Baptist missionary Thomas Burchell would return to Jamaica from his trip to England with a paper declaring their freedom. When he came back empty-handed, their anger escalated. Samuel Sharp, who was afforded limited freedom of movement as a leader, went about planning a strike. He and other leaders of the resistance encouraged others to join the strike. Missionaries discouraged people from joining the effort and refused their assistance, though some were later accused of contributing to the cause. Regardless, on December 25, 1831, enslaved Black laborers went on a general strike. Many of the strikers were Christian, particularly Baptists. Led by Samuel Sharp, they advocated for basic freedoms, better working conditions, and a living wage. They refused to return to work until their demands were met. But when their demands were refused and word spread that the British planned on using force, the strike turned into an all-out revolt. On December 27th, rebellion erupted on the Kensington estate near Montego Bay. They looted and burned plantations across western Jamaica, and white people fled town. The uprising only lasted until the first week of January, as the British brutally suppressed it. Troops and militia were sent to quell the uprising, and though the rebels put up a fight, they were overpowered by the colonial forces. Some scattered resistance continued, but plantation owners and the Jamaican government retaliated after the rebellion was over by killing many enslaved people and burning churches where they worshipped. Around 207 of the enslaved laborers and 14 white people were killed during the uprising. More than 300 more enslaved people were later executed for involvement in the revolt, including Samuel Sharp. The Baptist War did not end slavery in Jamaica. It did help convince more people that slavery was not politically viable anymore, as it resulted in a lot of property damage and loss of life. In 1833, the Parliament of the UK passed the Slavery Abolition Act, making the purchase and ownership of enslaved people illegal throughout much of the British Empire, leading to emancipation in Jamaica. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can keep up with us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. You can also email us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you here again tomorrow. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to this day in history class, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination and the calendar. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're traveling through another dimension to take a closer look at the life of Twilight Zone creator and master of the twist ending, Mr. Rod Serling. The day was December 25th, 1924. Screenwriter and television producer Rod Serling was born in Syracuse, New York. Later in life, he was fond of saying that he was, quote, a Christmas present that was delivered unwrapped. Although best known for his role as the narrator and on-screen host of The Twilight Zone, Serling had a long and varied career in entertainment and was also a noted academic lecturer. He wrote approximately 252 scripts and won numerous awards in his lifetime, including two Writers Guild of America awards and a Golden Globe. He also won the Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series six times, which, as of 2021, is more than anyone else in history. Rodman Edward Serling grew up in Binghamton, New York, a small city upstate. He was the second of two sons born to working-class parents Esther and Samuel Lawrence Serling. 
His father was a grocer and later became a butcher when the Great Depression put his store out of business. Both parents encouraged Rod when he took an interest in performing, and as a child he would set up a stage in his basement and then act out dialogue from pulp magazines and movies, whether anyone was watching or not. In junior high, Serling joined the debate team, and in high school he wrote and edited for the school paper. It was during this time, in the midst of World War II, that he first demonstrated the social conscience that would come to define his later work. He frequently used his platform at the paper to encourage his peers to support the war effort, and he considered dropping out before graduation so that he could enlist a few months sooner. In the end, Serling's civics teacher talked him out of it, saying, quote, War is a temporary thing. It ends. Education doesn't. Without your degree, where will you be after the war? Serling took the advice to heart and finished high school. He attended graduation and even gave a speech. Then, the very next morning, he enlisted in the U.S. Army. He was hoping to join the fight against the Nazis in Europe, but was sent to the Pacific Theater as a paratrooper instead. Serling served a four-year tour and saw combat in the Philippines on multiple occasions, eventually earning the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star for his trouble. He was wounded multiple times and was surrounded by death on a daily basis. At one point, his regiment, nicknamed the Death Squad, had a 50% casualty rate, with over 400 of their men killed in action. As you might imagine, Serling was deeply affected by his experiences in the field. He was discharged from the army in 1946, but continued to be haunted by nightmares and flashbacks for the rest of his life. He would later channel this trauma into his writing. Many of his future scripts explored the theme of war from the view of allies and enemies alike, highlighting the unpredictability of death and the moral cost of war on society. As the writer later explained, quote, I was bitter about everything, and at loose ends when I got out of the service. I think I turned to writing to get it off my chest. When Serling had recovered from his wounds, he enrolled in the physical education program at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Before long, he changed his major to drama and English lit, and went on to earn his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1950. Over the next few years, Serling began writing for radio and TV, with his big break being a TV movie called Patterns that he wrote for NBC. The film, which followed the lives of ruthless New York industrialists, won Serling his first Emmy in 1955. For the rest of the decade, he continued to go against the grain of the conservative TV medium. At the time, most programs ignored serious issues in favor of domestic comedy or Wild West action, but Serling tackled difficult topics head-on. His TV dramas, such as Requiem for a Heavyweight and A Town Has Turned to Dust, brought attention to social issues like discrimination, lynching, and union organizing. These productions earned acclaim for Serling, but brought him major heat from the network censors as well. 
So, in 1957, he decided to take a different approach. He pitched CBS executives on a pilot episode for a weekly sci-fi fantasy anthology series called The Twilight Zone. When the initial two episodes proved to hit with the public, the network ordered a full season in 1959, followed, eventually, by four more. Serling had found the perfect workaround for his problem. If the networks and sponsors were uncomfortable seeing real-world issues reflected in their broadcasts, then he would simply filter the controversial subjects through the lens of fantasy and science fiction. As the writer later put it, quote, I found that it was all right to have Martians saying things Democrats and Republicans could never say. Serling won another three Emmys for his work on the series. In addition to his role as narrator and host, he also wrote more than half of the show's 151 episodes, a nearly inhuman feat. In the late 1960s, Serling turned his focus to the big screen, which he appreciated for its lack of commercials and looser restrictions on runtime and content. His most famous movie screenplay was for the original movie version of Planet of the Apes, a morality tale with a sci-fi twist, one of Serling's specialties. Around the same time, he also started teaching classes on screenwriting at Ithaca College. In light of the social and political climate of the 1960s, it was Serling's goal to help instill a sense of moral responsibility in the next generation of TV writers. In 1970, he returned to TV himself, once again writing and hosting an anthology series, this one called Night Gallery. Not as beloved or as successful as The Twilight Zone, Night Gallery still delivered thought-provoking genre stories, albeit with more of a focus on horror and suspense than science fiction. The show concluded its three-season run with its 43rd episode in 1973. Two years later, Rod Serling suffered a series of heart attacks, presumably brought on by a lifetime of chain smoking. He passed away on June 28, 1975, at the age of 50. Since it's Christmas, I thought we could end the show not by talking about Rod Serling's death, but by looking at his own connection to the holiday. You know, besides the fact that it's his birthday. He was raised Jewish and was fiercely proud of his heritage, according to his daughter Anne. However, Serling's wife Carol was a Unitarian, and her husband came to appreciate her more open-ended approach to belief. As an adult, Serling celebrated Christmas like many people do, as more of a secular, quasi-spiritual holiday than a strictly religious one. He wrote a number of Christmas-themed stories over the years, both for radio and for television. Some of the better-known are a black comedy called No Christmas This Year, and a modern interpretation of Dickens' Christmas Carol, titled A Carol for Another Christmas. Still, his most famous holiday work has to be The Night of the Meek, a Christmas episode of The Twilight Zone from the show's second season. It follows an alcoholic department store Santa, played by actor and comedian Art Carney, who wishes he could do more for his local community. The down-on-his-luck Santa laments the state of the world, saying, quote, 
I live in a dirty rooming house on a street filled with hungry kids and shabby people where the only thing that comes down the chimney on Christmas Eve is more poverty. Despite the heavy subject matter, the episode does end on a happy, hopeful note, something of a rarity in the Twilight Zone. By writing a Christmas story rooted in social concerns of the time, Serling added a sense of poignancy and warmth that's rarely seen in holiday-themed TV shows. That's a reflection of what I believe is Serling's greatest achievement, pushing the medium of television to be more than pleasant, disposable entertainment. His stories challenged conventions and posed hard questions about how we see ourselves and about what we owe to each other. As an artist both shaped and troubled by the world he lived in, Serling expressed an earnest care for his fellow man in nearly every word he wrote. That's a good example to follow on Christmas, whether you live here or in the Twilight Zone. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. If you celebrate Christmas, I hope you have a merry one. But either way, I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.